Hello and welcome to the Learning from Legends show with me, Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. Today we've got a very special guest. It's a guy who I've known for quite a long time uh, and I think you'd have to agree that he is a legend of Australian politics. His name is Dr. John Hewson, a man who had to take on Paul Keating in the famous 1993 fight back election and unfortunately didn't pull it off. But I tell you what, you'll be very surprised when you learn the kind of career this guy had. He is without doubt the most famous economist this country has ever produced and the kinds of life he's lived as a consequence of being what you might think is a boring job being an economist. Uh, well, I think John Hewson is about to change that. So we'll go back in time. Uh, I've got at least five brushes with John Hewson before uh, I got to know him even on a more regular basis on all my media um, jobs and businesses. Uh, but this story of John Hewson is really a fascinating one. And I think you will find it very interesting. So without any further ado, let's catch up with Dr. John Hewson. John, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Peter. Legend meets legend, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a mini legend compared to you, mate. Yeah, no, what a joke. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I, I wanted to start this interview off by my brush with John Hewson. Some of these you you don't know, some of you might not even remember, but my first brush with you when I was an economic school teacher at Waverley College as a very young man, and you were actually doing te economics on television. Um, can you remember? Well, can you remember when you did that? I've got to say, you were very stiff and wooden, but you were very impressive, of course. Yeah, look, uh, that was something. It was in very early days of, of economists getting engaged like that, I guess. And mm. a couple of us from uh, from the University of New South Wales did some presentations. I forget now on things like exchange rates and budget deficits and so on. Yeah, it was pretty boring, even to us. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but the fact that I remembered it, I remembered it, and and then of course yeah. my second brush with you was when you and uh, John Nyland actually hired me to to be a part time tutor at University of New South Wales. That was one of your best decisions, wasn't it? Yeah, it was excellent, and uh, you've come a long way. We made an excellent choice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pleased to see that academia didn't hold you back. <laughs> no, no, well, I think you, you showed me how uh, to cope with academia. Uh, now, yeah. my third brush with you, and you got no idea of this, I was flying to Qantas and uh, with my six-year-old son then, Marty, who nowadays is the CEO of Contango Asset Management, um, but, and I'm sure he was reading something about Disneyland or whatever, and I was reading Wall Street Journal, and there you were, you had a column in the Wall Street Journal, Um well, or at least you, you wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal. How did you manage that, John? I don't know. I mean, um, back in the, the uh, 70s and 80s, um, I worked uh, as an Australian correspondent for International Reports, which was run out of uh, out of the US, out of New York. And I just sort of do a weekly um, commentary on, on Australia and, and to some extent the region. Mm. on issues, economic issues, basically, and then they'd marshal that together with a <clears throat> reports from a lot of other places, and so it was international reports. So it was organised by an old friend of mine, Andrew Hilton, from the World Bank, who had moved out of the World Bank by then. But um, I think there are a number of columns that, that uh, flowed out of that, mm. into things like the Wall Street Journal and um, I think uh, 
you know, was it your, in those days, Euro Money was the big one. Mm. <laughs> International. There's a whole lot of those opportunities because I did quite a lot in those days on finance and um, you know, and, uh, banking and finance. I guess because uh, in the seventies, I got actively engaged. Uh, well, I came back from the IMF and I worked in the Reserve Bank. And I had this passion for deregulating and reforming the Australian financial system, which I thought would open us up as a country, you know, mm. to open up its collective uh, <clears throat> or centralised wage determination, that it'd, it'd make uh, high levels of tariff protection uh, indefensible and so on. So I fought very hard for that in the Reserve Bank days, and then I took a job as economic advisor to Phil Lynch, who was then Treasurer, and we started the whole process to initiate the Campbell Inquiry, so... You know, that all came from those experiences, uh, I guess, in the U.S. Mm. Um, and um, you know, particularly the IMF, where you know, in the early seventies, uh, anyone working in the IMF was sort of feeling that they were part of changing the world because the global financial system had collapsed. And, you know, you'd had uh, it Nixon break the link with gold. You'd had uh, the um, collapse of the fixed exchange rate system under Bretton Woods, and the drift towards uh, generalised floating. It, and, uh, the OPEC quadrupling the oil price and starting a, a couple of decades of stagflation. You know, it was a very challenging time and and all bets are off. So um, trying to position a country like Australia in the context of what was inevitably going to happen globally was a very significant challenge. And we thrived on it. I think we wrote a couple of books and a, a half a dozen or more articles in referee journals mm. trying to drive some of that debate. So... Yeah. I want to actually just go back a little bit, bit further now. I'll, I'll return to my brushes with the great John Hewson. Um, so, and I've always loved the fact that you you lived in a street in the St George area. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but is, I know you're a St George fan. But so you're in the St George area, and what was the name of the street that you lived in? It, was, it seemed like a, an irony considering your your future political um, achievements. I originally lived in the street called Willison Road, which on the other side of the railway line ran down to Jubilee Oval. So, mm. yes, St George was in my blood from a very early stage. In fact, I was born just up the road from Jubilee Oval in Carlton. Mm. Uh, and then we moved to Beverly Hills when I was 10, and the street was Welfare Avenue. That's Welfare Avenue. <laughs> At the time, there were only a few houses in the street, mostly. It was still farmland. Mm. Uh, and the school was at the end of the street, yes, but I did get paid out a few times from <laughs> welfare. <laughs> yeah, because you, you rationalised the welfare of the Australian economy, or well, certainly put, put forward ideas <laughs> on how to do it. Now, now John, I want to try and understand uh, why you did economics, where you studied economics, and did you at the time see that you were able to, that you're, you're going to have an exciting life because not a real lot of economists, I guess until the age of the, the media economists with people like Craig James and Shane Oliver and people like that, mm. until then, it, it, an economist's life wasn't all that exciting. You're, you're away doing a lot of hard work and pouring over statistics, but you certainly have used economics to have quite an exciting life. Did you see that as a young man? No, look, I sort of backed into it in a way. I mean, it, it always goes back, I think, to the encouragement of a good teacher in, in, in a lot of cases as to how you end up doing certain things. I mean, mm. <laughs> I was manager of the school bank at Cogra High, <laughs> 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 and I did economics, uh, and um, Bill Blakey was an economics teacher. And in my time there, we went from a three-year high school 
to a five-year high school. Mm. So it's from an intermediate certificate high school in those days to a leaving certificate. And so uh, Bill said to me, you know, do you want to do economics in the, in the four, years four and five? I don't know. The uh, years in the to, to to get the leaving certificate, and then I said yes. Um, in fact, we'll do honours. He said, "Well, that's good." But he said, "None of us are qualified to teach it, so we'll get the textbook, and you and I will work through it." Mm. And that's how we started, uh, basically. And uh, then, of course, when you go off to university, the attitude of universities to have to unteach you everything you ever learnt in economics before you got there. Yeah. Uh, but I went to Sydney University, and then um, I. After I finished my, my honours degree at Sydney University, I felt that I, you know, I, I should be doing more because I was I took a job in Canberra, part of the Treasury, then was Bureau of Statistics, and so I started writing all these papers about how we'd start initiate statistical collections on things like commercial bills, markets, and so on. And uh, I found that job pretty boring, and I did enrol at ANU for a few weeks uh, to do a master's, but it was just repeating what I'd heard. Sydney, so I, I actually decided I'd go overseas and study. So I wrote to a whole series of universities across Canada <coughs> and the UK and was offered teaching posts for a year because um, we, you know, I'd left it too late to apply for the US academic year. It starts in September. I was this was sort of April, May. Anyway, I got these offers from across the uh, Canadian universities, so I took one and I thought, well, I'll make it an interesting experience. I went to Saskatchewan. Mm. In the middle, bitterly cold. Yeah, I was going to say. And uh, then I was there for 11 months, but I did a full master's degree, two years of coursework, and a 450-page thesis in 11 months. I mean, what else do you do in the cold? <laughs> and that made, that that allowed me actually to apply to a whole host of schools in the US and, and, and meet the requirement for the following year. And I got accepted at a range of them, including Harvard and Columbia and so on, but I chose Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. To, to do another master's and PhD on the basis that, well, two things. One, it had, in my view, the best academic staff at the time of any of the universities I could have got into. I mean, Harvard, for example, in those days, we were faced with the reality that your first year of classes <laughs> would be taught by last year's graduate students. You know? oh. And uh, if you wanted to see your advisor, I thought I'd like to do some work with Galbraith, for example. I was told, well, you'd be lucky if you catch him one one once during a year, mm. whereas Hopkins had this requirement that uh, the academics that were there um, were required to be there, you know, 50, 50 weeks of the year and to be available every day, Gee. which was good and bad. I mm. mean, every time you went to collect your mail, your bloody professor grabbed hold of you and asked you how you were doing and whether you've done this or whether you finished <laughs> that. <laughs> that was a bit of a pain, but it was an excellent, uh, excellent university. So we, mm. And it was a very – it was built as a graduate university, so – who was the biggest um, name at the time, John? Who was the biggest name at Hopkins? Oh, well, we had uh, Carl Crisp, one of the founders of Econometrics, as one of my teachers. I worked as his research assistant for a while. Mm. Uh, Jörg Niehans, who was a world-famous uh, monetary economist. Uh, Bella Balas, who was an international development, had a, a joint appointment with the World Bank. It's, uh, Lou Massini, there's a whole host of them. Mm. And in terms of their fields, they were among the world's best. And uh, Hopkins had a great tradition of, these what we used to call general seminars once a week where they'd call in all the big-name economists of the world and they'd make us as students uh, a pair at a time lead the discussion on their paper, which was pretty daunting sort yeah. of experience. But you did learn. You did learn very quickly. I found that university phenomenal. It was very demanding. We had two years of required coursework and then a thesis. Uh, they examined us at the end of each semester and uh, – 
and then a, a general oral, written and oral test at the end of each year. Mm. <laughs> it, was a, it was a real grind, and they really, um, you know, I never forget my first day there. They all sat, there were 20 students, eight, 12 from America, eight from around the world, and um, it, it is a class intake, and they set us all an exam. And it didn't matter what your background was. And one of my class already had a PhD from the European University. Mm. They set us an exam and then failed a lot of us. <laughs> and told us how, how, how little we knew and how much we'd have to, you know, get the finger out in order to actually succeed. And there was that sort of pressure constantly. But it was a great environment. So that was one reason, just the quality of the teaching staff and the requirements that they were there. And the other one was it was close to Washington, and I had an old friend, uh, Vic Argy from uh, Sydney University, who'd taken a position at the IMF, and mm. he was encouraging me to you know to get a job there. So I, after two years of coursework, I took a consultancy with the IMF, uh, wrote a big paper uh, at um, Christmas vacation uh, on infl- hyperinflation in Brazil, and I did another one on uh, development strategies in South Korea and so on. And that led to a full-time post at the IMS for a few years. And uh, um, so I mixed academia, finishing my thesis, uh, with, with uh, working in the IMF, where I started to do an awful lot on international banking and euro currency markets. So at the early stages of that, I got a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship to do that. and It allowed me to travel to Europe and interview bankers from the Bank of England or the Bank for International Settlements, you know, mm. as well as commercial banks. So that was the most really... It was a mixture of fairly significant theoretical work and a lot of applied work. And, um, you know, I could only see, you know, you know, economics is like, if, if we ever really admit the restrictiveness of, say, of our assumptions about things like perfect competition, uh, we know that the world is nowhere near <laughs> yeah. and never will be. But we act as if that, that, that and rational behaviour gives us the outcomes we should have. So I was always about looking at the assumptions of models and testing their reality. Yeah. So the blend of academic discipline, mathemat- mathematical precision and academic discipline on one side matched with um, fairly deep practical experience on the other. Yeah. So, so John, um, to my way of thinking, you, you've used something that you're enthusiastic about Namely, economics and and how it applies in the in the real world to actually, you know, like in a competitive sense, grow your brand. And and though, well, I, I asked this question straight. Did you want to do that? Did you, in a sense, want to become a famous Australian economist so that no, when you, when you I, came home, you'd be doors would open to you and success would follow? Did you have an aspiration no, to be no, wealthy or something, whatever? No, I didn't. Um, I didn't um, have a very clear idea. I mean, I decided to come back to Australia. Gave up a you know a, a significant post in the IMF because of what we'd written. I was offered academic jobs around the states, and I was offered a vice presidency of one of the big American banks and so on. And um, I decided that oh no, none of that really appealed. I you know it was all going to pay me a lot of money, but I wanted to come home, raise my son in Australia. So I, I returned to Australia with no idea where to go. Mm. But I did. I was interviewed by the Reserve Bank, by Treasury, and uh, in Monash, mm. and um, got offers from all three, and took the Reserve Bank, which pissed off Treasury. Mm. Uh, but I, you know, I just was an outsider as far as they were concerned. I had come out of their stable uh, that they recognised, but uh, they'd seen what I'd achieved in the US, so they wanted to bring me back. And I just took the IMF because it was able. So I took the Reserve Bank because it was able. I was able to actually come back to Sydney. Mm. And, um, you know, for family reasons. And did the Reserve Bank pay you fabulously well? 
No, I was a visiting economist initially, mm. and uh, Harry Harry um, Knight, deputy governor, became governor. Took me under his wing. Uh, I travelled internationally with him. Indeed, we were in um, in um, Tehran, about to go to Riyadh. Um, in um, when the the Whitlam um, when Whitlam was removed, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, he asked me, "Well, what do you reckon?" And I said, "You've got to go home. You just got to be at home." So we cancelled the rest of the trip. We're going on to Europe, but he took me under his wing and uh, had me do some interesting things for him. I and mean, when I came back, of course, I'd been working in the IMF, not only just on international banking, but we'd already also all, we started world economic forecasting. Mm. As the Reserve Bank, sorry, as the world, as the IMF now does it, we had, you know, very early days trying to basically leak models from different countries and come to some sort of synthesised uh, set of uh, forecasts. Uh, I'd worked uh, on the US and Canada in those forecasting. So when I came back, and, and you know, I've been part of the, as I said, the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system and so on, um, Harry said to me, look, could you take these Reserve Bank forecasts and just tell me what you think of them? Just as a private exercise for me, you know, just give me an assessment of what you think. <laughs> so I, I had a look at them and I couldn't believe it. I mean, in those days, extrapolating the past, Treasury had seen the, the pickup in inflation, early, in the early 70s, pickup in inflation and unemployment as blips. Mm. Uh, and then the slowdown. How wrong were they? Would be reversed. <laughs> they'd be reversed back to long run, long run trend within about twelve or eighteen months. And I just said that basically, he said very nicely to Harry that this was nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these were structural shifts: um, the collapse of the fixed exchange rate system, quadrupling of oil prices. We were going into a world of stagflation. Inflation wouldn't come down; it'd stick up. Unemployment would stick up. Uh, growth would be flat uh, on a you know, volatile but flat, flatter mm. for quite some time, and uh, and you now Harry then released that to the uh, <laughs> the research department, the Reserve Bank, who in those days were on a, an unquestioned ped- pedestal, and I was I spent about a day having to defend myself in front of Bill Norton and all his team. Mm. Um, but it was it was an interesting experience because some of that team mm. came to me afterwards and said, "Well, you were right. <laughs> you know, we got it wrong." And that, that's what worries me. It's so easy to fall into this trap of just extrapolating what you experienced to what you know, and and uh, you know, and statistically, of course, using time series extrapolation and so on mm. as the basis of your thinking, without making any adjustment for changes in behaviour or important structural shifts yeah. in you know practices of government practices, business practices, and so on. And so you see it now. We we've gone into this um, this. Uh, Policy-induced recession. Uh, I think the Australian economy was actually headed to recession before COVID, but certainly the policy response, the medical policy response, mm. uh, you know, with social distancing and restrictions and so on, um, certainly pushed us into a, the deepest recession since the, the Great Depression. And um, you know, that has brought an enormous change in behaviour mm. at mm. all levels of society and all sorts of institutions, households, businesses, governments. And so on, and um, you know, it's very difficult to get a handle on how that will now unfold. Yeah, well, let's you go. You can't to... just look at the past because there's no relevant historic experience. No, exactly right. And you know, the impact of stay-at-home workers and 
And like the, the age of the internet is a big, big structural change as well. But John, let's go back to you again. Fourth, <laughs> my fourth brush was 1983 when I became a full-time um, employee at the University of New South Wales. And, Great teacher. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was around the time when you were starting to move to, be, to becoming a, an MP, the member for Wentworth. Is that right, right? So I do remember a lot of your colleagues being what very- year was it? About eighty three. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I, I'd been working in the Fraser, Howard, you know, in the Fraser government mm. initially as an advisor to Lynch, and then as then when he was removed, Fraser put me on Howard's staff. Yeah, and then I, I spent six years or something. We, we, um, I had periods as his chief of staff or just chief economic advisor, working with him and and Fraser and their and, the, and his staff. Right through that period, and um, you know, going into the trying to get the Campbell Commission up and get some of those decisions implemented, and a lot of them were implemented mm. before the change of government. And we we'd worked on the principle that it wouldn't matter who was in government post uh, the election in '83, they would in the end float the currency and license foreign banks and deregulate the banking system and so on, which is, you know, with the, the, the momentum that had been built up in internal policy terms and the work had all been done, or, um, you know, in terms of public expectations, uh, was such that uh, it didn't really matter that when Hawke came in and had uh, bank nationalisation as a key element of his policy platform, <laughs> that that would be soon become irrelevant and that these forces would, would occur. I mean, the first yeah. uh, major run on the currency, they'd have to float it. They couldn't really go back and try and fix it again. It's been a pretty pointless exercise through the 70s, uh, you know, making a political decision about what level the exchange rate ought to be. Mm. Imagine doing that in that cabinet room with four farmers and three <laughs> others. You know? Now you're being <laughs> nasty, mate. Now you're being nasty. But, John... No, you know, it was a very... But that just yeah. made a point that, you know, in the end, the market was, the, it was going to... A, a, a pretty awesome. well-functioning foreign exchange market was going to be fundamentally important to the country. Yeah. And so... So, you, so you market, say... Um, so, John, you're really saying then that when Hawke and Keating came in, the blueprint for, for these kind of regulatory changes were well and truly... Yeah, you know, in the winds. It was it was something that you know Keating in particular was yeah, going to right. have I mean, to ignore. We knew what, what had happened with Campbell. I mean, the Campbell report came in. It was a very detailed document, very independently written, going on the best expertise around the world. A uh, long a long series of uh, technical reports behind it. Uh, Fraser threw it all in the bin when we took it up to him. Said, well, you know, one of his staff had warned him that somewhere in those documents there was a prediction that the Housing interest rate would rise by about two and a half percent if they deregulated the mortgage mm. rates. Mm. And uh, he said, "I'm not having that." Threw it in the bin, and I said to him, "I stand in his office. You can't do that." He said, "Why not?" I said, "There's huge expectations out there as to you're going to respond decisively." Well, how are we going to fix it? And I said, "Why don't we set up a task force and and uh, break this report up into bite-sized chunks that can go through the cabinet mm. and make the key decisions?" And so. We set up a task force with his economic advisor, John Rose and myself, John Phillips from the Reserve Bank, um, David Morgan from the Treasury, and we, we performed that task force role. And a lot of the decisions had been taken. I mean, how did announce four to six foreign banks uh, in early 83? Um, the plan was set for the next exchange rate crisis to be basically followed by a, a floating of the currency and the, tech, and the technical structures that you'd need to do that. 
uh, the deregulation of banks was going to occur, and in the end, um, they'd have to license foreign banks because all of the foreign institutions in the country had spent all their time putting together all sorts of structures that they were going to build on if they could get an opportunity to apply for license, whether they'd done a joint venture or they decided to go on their own. Mm. And so, um, you know, that there was an inevitability there. And so, I mean, I wrote a column early on in just after the election in 83. Uh, Hill Samuel hired me to get him a banking license. I had to tell them they wouldn't. Because although they were number one investment bank or number one or two, depending on them or BT, uh, they weren't of uh, geographic significance as far as the UK was concerned, and the licences were basically be given on the basis of geographic significance. Mm. You know, you'd have, a, you'd have if you're going to have four, you'd have one from the US, one from the UK, one from Europe, you know, whatever. And um, these would be the best banks, the biggest banks, the most effective banks. So, although Hill Samuel's new number one in Australia, it was number eleven in the UK. Mm. So we came up with a structure to, to to set up a separate institution, a new entity, Macquarie Bank, a new co, became called, it was finally called Macquarie Bank, mm. and um, apply, apply under the old trading bank rules rather than wait for a, a you know a, a new a new foreign a new foreign bank license, which uh, was in it, I thought was inevitable, and Keating did in the end announce I think initially sixteen licenses, but. The strategy from Macquarie Bank or Hill Samuel was to just defensive, really. Mm. They knew that if the other big banks uh, got uh, foreign banking licences before them, then they'd steal all their staff, their best assets. And, uh, you know, whereas getting up and running before Keating uh, implemented that decision allowed them to establish a base in the market that, that uh, was an unassailable early position, you know. So. It's so, an interesting time because you were bl- I was blending all the knowledge I had out of government, mm, but with mm. all the practical experience I'd had in market. Well, my most logical question is, you know, that the initial allocation of Macquarie shares that you would have got, have you held them, and it has made you no, a very, very rich man? I gave them back. Uh, I, I when I went into politics, so your date eighty three. I, I stood for pre-selection in eighty five. Yeah. I entered politics in eighty seven. Yeah. Having predicted the stock market crash and all that, so I knew what would happen. I'd seen Phil Lynch get burnt on his so-called conflict of interest over his property drills and so on. So I gave the shares back. Um, I, um, it did, as you say, cost me tens of millions, <laughs> if not more. Uh, and uh, I sold all my the, the shares, the remaining shares I had after the stock market crash at a considerable loss. But I, I my aim in going into politics was. I thought it would be novel if an economist could be treasurer. So my aim was to be treasurer. Mm. Uh, and I started as shadow finance minister and then shadow treasurer. But you know, I never got to be treasurer. Mm. Uh, but I thought that uh, in that position, you didn't want any accusation of conflict of interest. So I wasn't. I didn't have any. I just owned a house. Now, John, I, I, I always remember uh, at the time, um, probably I don't remember a- accurately, but when we were working together, and it was just before you eventually went into politics, but you you were going off to a meeting one day, and it must have been a, a get-together of staff members, and, and you were driving out of the car park, either in a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. It was something unlo- unlikely for a, 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 an academic, particularly an unsuccessful academic, but you were a successful one. What, what was that car... And, it was a Ferrari. It was and, a Ferrari. And, and, and I, nobody ever really got to see it when I was in politics. I kept it in the garage. But, uh, <laughs> but your colleagues... There were all these stories you, about my red Ferrari, because all Ferraris are red. You know, yeah. I had a red Ferrari, and, I, and of course, they always had the, the, the wrong model 
in all the cartoons and everything as they drew them. But, of course, my secret laugh through the whole period was that it was silver and not red. Yeah, I thought it was silver. I think I saw it. <laughs> and the thing is I remember it because some of your colleagues were very snaky about your success. But I think in many ways it powered me to think there is an alternative to being an academic who's sitting around whinging about you know, their colleagues being successful. Yeah, yeah. You have to get your hands dirty in these issues. I mean, as an economist, that's why I just, although I had a lot of initial success as a pure academic writing, you know, theoretical and, and detailed empirical articles and so on, books, I, I didn't, you know, I, I got offended when some of my colleagues had written hundreds of technical papers, you know, in, in trade theory or something, Mm. And I used to say to myself or to them, so what impact's that at? You know? mm. <laughs> what impact in, you know, in your circle, academic circle of, I don't know, 10, 50, 100 people, you, you know, you're, a world, you're world class, but it's not going to make, you know, what difference did it make to global trade policy, for example, or yeah. to yeah. global fiscal or monetary policy? And that was always a concern of mine, that there must be the... the the role is not just to generate the theory and to, uh, you know, to um, and to uh, you know, come up with with policy recommendations. It's actually to be part of a process that recognising you know that these are going to be difficult to put into into practice. I mean, some of our early work showing uh, in empirical work, uh, technical papers and IMF staff papers, I'm showing that the US uh, capital control system didn't work. Mm. You know that, that that was being offset constantly. They put a control on one on one type of capital flow, and then it's come in form of another capital flow, or a euro currency market offshore, or something, or a dollar market offshore. Uh, that I know in the U.S. Treasury, they in the end just scrapped that program on the basis of the sort of work we showed. Now that was that was a, a direct consequence of some pretty serious academic work, but but uh, you know more generally, you've got to get your hands dirty as to how how you are going to get some of those policies implemented and, and what are the practical circumstances into which you're going to yeah. sell them. I mean, a lot of academics sit back and say they've solved the world's problems, but they haven't actually started to convince anybody that it's worth doing. Yeah, and I want to get to that because, you know, you, you certainly did try when you were in politics. But before I just get to that, obviously we'll talk about fight back and, and what, what you discovered there. But, you know, I, I, I hinted on how snaky some of your academic colleagues could have been, you know, I you know, working with the Liberal Party, B, driving Ferrari, mm. C, being successful and recognised right, right mm. around the country and the world. All those sort of things can make academics snaky. But what was the learning curve for you like when you had colleagues in the, in the coalition, the Liberal National Party? They must have seen you as a threat to – yeah, some people who thought they were going to be leader one day must have seen you as a threat. Yeah, look, I, I knew that that would be a problem, having been, you know, involved in the Fraser government for seven years as a senior staff. I mean, I'd been exposed to the best and worst of politics, and people forget that. You know, you have seen it all when you've been through that. And look, when I went into politics, I, I, everyone expected me to demand chairmanship of the Backbench Economic Committee to, to run a, get uh, myself up on some sort of parliamentary committees and so on. To speak uh, every week and shake the government in the party room, I did none of it. Mm. I didn't do any of that. I didn't even try to do that. My strategy was, uh, you know, I thought my my skill set was economics and finance. So, as a data was released or there was an opportunity to give a speech, I just spoke in my area, of field, my field of expertise. And um, over time, you know, I, I was commenting every day. Uh, 
in the media or, or, or wherever on economic and social policy developments uh, without actually offending anybody in the in the in the um, opposition because I you know I, I wasn't yeah you know, wasn't I was just doing what I was expected to do but I wasn't having having any status to do that apart from being a backbencher and then I became shadow minister for finance it gave me a platform then shadow treasurer gave me another platform and you increasingly got engaged but yeah. um so I didn't really offend them and I didn't intend to stand for the leadership but the prospect after the decade of Howard versus Peacock that now Peacock had lost in 1990, how I was going to have another go. I thought, Christ, that's the last thing we can do. We can afford as a party. And so I put my hand up. And I got I got broad-based support. I mean, Howard talks about the broad church. I had the left and right, mm-hmm. wet and dry mm-hmm. support um, because they, they wanted a change. And then I had to deliver against that expectation. John, but I, I... Didn't, I didn't cross anybody in that process. You know, I don't think I ever... They might tell different stories, but I, I don't think I ever had a, a falling out with any of those colleagues mm-hmm. during that process. I, I didn't sort of grandstand at all, uh, is what people might have expected. Mm. All right, so that's the learning curve of colleagues, but what was the learning curve like going up against the likes of Hawke and particularly Keating? Because yeah, Keating could be very aggressive on anyone, and he would have hated the fact that you were very well qualified in an area yeah. where a lot of people thought you know he'd mastered the economics, you know, uh, basically in a nutshell in a very short period of time. Uh, that's right. I mean, he, we we worked well. I mean, I never took myself too seriously, and I you know I gave them credit when I thought they deserved it. In my role as leader of the opposition was very different. I took the view that, okay, sure, if we disagree with the government, we should argue the case. Uh, on, but I argue the case on the substance of the issue, not on just scoring a political point. But if we could set the agenda, if we could get out in front, if we could lead them into dealing with better policy, we'd, we'd, do, we'd do that. So there's a whole lot of my time spent being constructive. Now, I got a fair bit of criticism for doing that. You know, you don't give the other side anything. You've got to be tribal, you've got to hate them and so on. I could never see that. I thought that they were doing good things. I'd congratulate them and I'd make it easy for them. So when I was out there advocating zero tariff protection as an objective, it was easy for Keating to start saying, well, we'd better lower them, mm. you know, mm. and we'd get no, no reaction. And it didn't matter whether it was defence or foreign policy or economic policy. I tried to get out in front and, and set the agenda as if we were government and what we do. So... Some of the big crises, like the wool, wool crisis in the early 90s, we argued a market-based solution, which was ultimately adopted, um, and you know, without any National Party, Liberal Party fallout, mind you. And we have some of the biggest sheep crazies in the country, um, and um, you know, but we ma- I managed that internally and externally. But issues like you know, whether to terminate relationships with China after Tiananmen Square or whether we should make a commitment to the first Gulf War or, you know, whether Keating should be putting up interest rates before he didn't put them up in the late 80s. He's had to put them up higher and hold them there longer and they do, you know, damage it and cause a recession, which he subsequently said we didn't need to have, but we saw coming mm. for a couple of years. I mean, it was it was a constructive process. And I'm sure in there Keating, you know, threw everything he had at me um, and, uh, you know, and um, called me all sorts of names. But he is very sensitive about the fact that he didn't have a lot of formal education, and I did. Mm. And he, there was a sensitivity, which... I remember one day in the Parliament, you know, moving him out of public importance, Keating would always get up and walk out, you know, would take his whole team with him, so I'm basically talking to an empty other side of the house, mm. one poor bugger sitting at the desk. And um, 
I, so I called him. I said, hey, you? He said, are you speaking to me? I said, yes. He said, what are you saying? I said, look, uh, I, I've got your measure. <laughs> he laughed, of course, pissed mm. on me. And, uh, and uh, I said, yeah. I said, you know that I know that you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> he would have hated he that. He was furious. He stormed out of the bloody... One of my friends was waiting in his office to see him, and he went in, and finally they had his chief of staff came out of this place and said, oh, look... Uh, you can't, the boss can't see you. Is that bloody Houston's just attacked his lack of formal education, which is not what I said, you know. <laughs> but he was very sensitive about it. But it's interesting, after that election in 93, that he didn't expect to win and I didn't expect to win, and he did win. Mm. He said to me on the first day back in Parliament that um, he apologised for all the names he called me. He said, I don't really mean them. You know, he said, it's just playing politics. He said, you've got to understand, John, I've never forgotten this. That to me, politics is just a game, he said, and, if I, and I'll say I'll do whatever I have to do to win, which, of course, he's done. Mm. He's a man who championed the, the consumption tax, for example, that bagged me on it for the entire campaign. Uh, when he got rolled by Hawke on that 85 tax package, he said he'd fight for consumption tax till he died. Yeah. As, you know, broadening the tax base. Mm. Anyway, it was, uh, you know, I think there's mutual respect there, which persisted through that process, even though, you know, he had his fun at my expense. But, you know, I often just smiled yeah. at him. So, so, <laughs> so and I've, I've made this point that, that Fight Back was such an extensive document and, mm. and, and ultimately its extensiveness, in a sense, brought you undone. But a mm. hell of a lot of what you put together in that thing has since been uh, introduced by other governments, both Labor and, and Liberal, over time. Yeah, look, uh, when I became leader, as I said, I didn't expect to be, and then, of course, I was. The first party room, I said, look, we've got to be realistic about where we are. We've had a decade when in most of the 80s out of government. And um, I said, look, we've got three weaknesses. One weakness is disunity within each party and between the coalition partners. The second was a lack of policy credibility. We, you know, Howard's tax policy in 87 didn't add up with double-counted revenue. Peacock couldn't explain the health policy, couldn't remember it indeed in 1990. So we got, we've got to recognise that we start from a, a zero or negative base. And the third weakness is we have an anachronistic party structure. We have an inability to campaign effectively on the ground to match the ALP. And they're, so they're my three objectives. I said it will probably take two terms to do that. But uh, we're going to give it our best shot and see if we can do it in one. And from that on, we got everybody engaged in policy development. And so, fight back. Okay, it came out with a hell lot of detail. But the background was yes, we had to be seen as credible. And even though um, you know it was left open to all sorts of accusations, they didn't really shake any of the foundations mm. of the detail or any other numbers. We, you know, they were really conservative numbers. People just, I said to them when we're putting it together. You know, we're going to have a GST. Let's say we expect the GST to bring in a hundred million revenue, a hundred number, pick a number, say a hundred. Well, let's make it seventy-five mm. <laughs> in our figuring on the basis that I'll be the first prime minister if I get to deliver it that's ever over delivered. You mm. deliver a bigger personal tax cut than I promised, rather than scrounging it back. Mm. And that was a conscious strategy. And you know, so it was hard to shake the detail of that. Although it was easy to run a scare campaign. Not so much on the GST, which I think faded as an issue in the campaign. Certainly, our overnight polling showed 10 days out it was not the big issue. Health was the big issue. But, um, you know, it was easier to run a scare campaign on health. I mean, it was just without any reference to the policy. It was just, 
an assertion in, in key marginal seats that they saturated with pamphlets and letterbox drops and door stops and you know this sort of thing. That, that uh, you know, mum and dad, if mum takes two kids to the doctor, it's going to cost ninety something dollars. Nothing in the policy suggested that at all. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but that, it was an effective, very focused, as I said, Mark, you know, incapacity to fight the Labor Party on the ground in key marginal seats was the thing that undid us. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt about that. Even though, you know, people say, oh, you can't tell me about a birthday cake. Well, the answer was actually honest and correct. I mean, it's just that we had a very complicated wholesale sales tax system with variable rates mm. and a whole lot of variable incidents. And so... You just say you transition to a birthday cake. Yeah, well, what sort of cake? But some of the prices will drop dramatically mm. and some of them might go up depending on whether the old sales tax was in play but, <laughs> on those ingredients. But as you know, not, as you know, John, but, try, you know, it wasn't, wasn't clever politics, yeah. so I can yeah, tell you that. That's but right. And to try to explain on, answer all the questions. Yeah, and try to explain on TV with Mike Wilson no, no. putting pressure. Very hard. But I, I guess historically now when you go to your grandchildren's birthdays, when you look at that birthday cake, you you must always remember that event. Oh, look, I I I don't you know just I feel that one of the things that we stood for was telling the truth and, and arguing the facts on mm. their merits, and I still think that was an asset, even though that's been used against me and every other bugger that every time I open my mouth these days said, yeah, but you can't explain a birthday cake. Mm. How are you going to fix this? Well, that that's you know it's a cheap shot because. Yeah. Uh, the explanation was right. It's just that it's complicated. And unfortunately, we've drifted into a world where the solutions these days are three-word slogans, you know, yeah. stop the boats, or, you know, oppose a carbon price, whatever, you know. like mm. Everything can't be summarised in a three-word slogan. These issues are complicated. John, climate, for example, is a big complicated issue yeah. that's going to take a dramatic change in behaviour far greater than we've seen, say, in response to the pandemic. You see, you don't just dispense with that by saying we're not having a target or we're not you know, <laughs> we're not going to foster renewable energy. I mean, what are you going to do? But These are complicated issues. They, they need a more sophisticated debate. And, and, and one of the sort of the cheap shots that you you face nowadays is that, you know, John Hewson has become a lefty since he's got out of politics. Mm. So, so mm. Yeah, is it something that you suppress that you, when you were in politics, that you some some policies or some approaches that, the Liberal Party could never support. Did you have to repress that when you're in the in the Liberal Party? I'll give you a good example of how we carried that out. Look, when I did fight back, you know, and uh, the, obviously a big big package and uh, introducing a, a, a GST, which was going to have a significant effect, a greater effect on lower to middle income groups, yeah, and so on. So I said, let's demonstrate that we can use this structure to correct inequities in the social system. And the example I used was pensioners who, in, you know, in those days, a pensioner were paying for residential accommodation at about 20 bucks a week left to cover birthdays and, and grog and everything else, you know, and, and, and they were really disadvantaged. And I said, right, as compensation for pensioners, let's not just give them the 15% um, increase in pension. Let's double the pension and let's give them unqualified access, full access to private health insurance mm. and a couple of other things. So we have made a significant, in that document, nobody focuses on, we were proposing a very significant restructuring of the age pension and age pension entitlements, which was going to fix a major problem in inequality generally and particularly against the age. 
And we never got credit for that, but that was the sort of argument that I put. Mm. And, you know, circumstances are different. Unemployment then is different to what it is today. Uh, the age, positions of the age is different. But, you know, over the years, we've seen just an erosion of the standing of the age in this country that's, that's alarming. And I think back and think, well, if we'd actually done that, the circumstances would have been so fundamentally different. I like the opportunities to reform the aged care sector going back to the Aged Care Act in, 80, in 97 under Howard. Mm. I mean, which were almost basically privatised a fair bit of aged care and led to a lot of the problems that are being identified in the Royal Commission today. So, you know, and it was we, we could never win some of these arguments in the detail like uh, privatisation. It's not just, as was the case, say, in Kenneth selling power authorities in Victoria. It's not just a question of getting maximum dollars back for the budget. It's a question of the competitive structure into which you're going to sell those assets. And I know in uh, my days at uh, ABN AMRO, Chairman of ABN AMRO, we were involved in every one of those privatisations in Victoria, power privatisations, either as an advisor or as an equity provider or debt provider or some combination. And we, I used to comment to people like Stockdale and others that, Christ, you know, do you understand that the internal rates of return in these deals are so ridiculously low that you guarantee brownouts and, and structural failures going forward? Uh, no, again, we have to maximise the revenue. Mm-hmm. Nobody thought about the competitive structure into which those assets should have been sold. You saw the same. But it didn't matter so much, say, with the Commonwealth Bank, which Keating uh, ultimately did under our, our pressure. But, um, you know, Telstra, for example, one of the proposals that, that I favoured, which uh, although we said we'd sell Telstra, I thought you'd keep the, the landline network or the, the network itself. It would be the the, um, the uh, mobile network today. But you keep that in public hands and open it up to equal-based competition for all the service providers to come in on the same price basis into that, into that government-owned network. Now, those issues were never really debated uh, and um, you know I can remember one of the arguments was used against it was time local phone call Christ anyone who's going to ever try to time local phone call was politically dead mm. think about what we've got today yeah, exactly <laughs> right. everyone's got a time local phone call it's just the world has shifted so much in some of these areas but you know a lot of the statements I made about things like you know, gross multicultural affairs you know, I think they stood the test of time so, uh, so are you a lefty at heart, but a a, a righty by head and rational rationalisations? Oh, I, I think markets, uh, you know, are, are to relied on where you can. But people forget that markets are as good as this regulatory structure within which the market forces operate. So, where there hasn't been enough attention given is to the proper regulatory structure within which you want to maximise the benefit of market forces. Hmm. If you guess privatise something on the basis of, oh, we'll, we'll get efficiency gains, yes, but at what price in terms of the social and uh, economic environmental consequences of what you're doing? All right. So, uh, we've, we've got through a lot of your career, and I could talk to you for a much longer, but I've got to throw okay. this at you as well because you ha- you've lived an extensive life. You've done so many things, but, you know, it, it clearly with successful people, it brings it with it family pressure. Was was that something that was a, a, a difficult thing to pull off the double play, be so successful in so many areas, but also keep the whole family story going as well as you would have liked? Oh, yes. I mean, that, that's true. I mean, um, obviously, um, 
there are pressures there. And, um, you know, it is hard to balance. Um, but, you know, you do the best you can, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it is. And a lot of the people I know who are very successful have had the same challenges, you know, and it's a, it is an amazing thing to pull the double play. One last question, John. Would you do it again? Um, yeah, I certainly run the same sort of campaign we ran in the early 90s, maybe spend a bit more time on marketing uh, and, and explanation, but we not that it's very difficult in opposition because you don't have the money mm. and the time and you can't command the media. But, uh, look, yeah, I think uh, overall the, the net contributions have been positive. My, my whole motivation is just, sounds a bit religious, but the purpose of life is to live a life of purpose, and I think that's what I've tried to do. I've certainly had an over, over, overriding passion for good evidence-based public policy, and I've spent most of my life in whatever I've been doing as an academic, business, uh, in charities, um, in politics, trying to make that point. Well, John, I think you've done a fantastic job taking the, the world of academia to the real world and uh, you've always been an inspiration for me. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks very much, Peter. And that was Dr. John Hewson. I think you must agree that he has had a very, very important role in some of the big policies of this country, from GST to deregulation and a whole lot more. And when you think about policies of that magnitude, not only are big milestones in politics, they're big milestones in our lives. Without deregulation, you wouldn't have had someone like John Simon who came along, who then took on the banks and reduced interest rates by 2 or 3%. We wouldn't be having interest rates what we're seeing nowadays in that competitive environment that uh, guys like John Simon and Mark Burris introduced with their mortgage um, uh, lending products that took on the banks. Wouldn't have happened without deregulation. Deregulation wouldn't have happened without people like John Hewson. So very, very important people in our lives. Um, before I go, uh, people keep asking me, um, what do I do apart from all this media stuff? Well, in case you don't know, we have a financial services business. That means we are a financial advisory. Um, you can go to switzeradvisory.com.au. We have a Switzer report which helps you pick stocks. They're doing really well. We have some of the best stock pickers in the country there. You can go to switzerreport.com.au for that. And you can also read me every day on Switzer Daily, and that's switzer.com. So that's me for this week. I look forward to talking to you next week. I have another legend from Australian business, politics and society. Ooh. Ooh.